Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. This will be our text this Lord's Day as we look at verses 1 through 7. As you turn there, uh, as you can probably see already, we're coming to the Lord's table today. And so uh, as we go through the Word and as we prepare our hearts, we want you to know this is a, a table that is open to all professing followers of Jesus Christ today. If you've yet to profess your faith in Christ, we would invite you to observe as those of us who have received the Lord's table together and worship together in that way. And we'll be doing that as our time of response today in response to God's Word. As we come to Galatians chapter 4, uh, just a reminder of where we've been. Paul has been addressing the Galatians because of a controversy that had arose. He had had false teaching from the Judaizers. He is correcting uh, them with the, the true and authentic gospel, which is that we are uh, justified, we are saved by faith in Christ and faith alone. Uh, we are not saved by adhering to the old covenant law, but we are saved by Christ and Christ alone. And so as he's been addressing these issues, we looked at last Lord's Day, how at the end there of chapter 3, he talks about how in Christ we have a new family, a new identity, that, that, that we are sons of God. That is an invitation not just for men, but for women as well. We talked about the significance of that phrase, sons of God. It means that, that we are those who are heirs who now receive this inheritance from our Lord. We are heirs, the scripture says. And as a result, we have a new future. And we close that chapter with verse 29 where we read, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so now Paul will pick up in his argument with now explaining more of what that means to be an heir according to promise. And so we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and add a reverence for God's word. If you're able to stand, if you would, as I read God's word for us. This is what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. This is God's word for us today, and this is what it says. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you would pray with me, church. Father, there is a glorious truth in this passage. And so, Father, I pray you would help us to see it today. I, I pray, Lord, if there's any here today who's not in Christ that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring them to repentance and faith that they would confess Christ as Lord. I pray for those, Lord, who are in Christ, that they would be reminded of the great truth of what it means to be an heir to the promise, to be a son of God, to be a child of God. Lord, would you help us to see and respond to these truths we ask in Christ's name. 
Amen. You may be seated. In March of 1898, there was a teenage boy from Russia named Peter Dynika. He was going on to a ship that would take him from Russia to Nova Scotia. For him, it was literally the other side of the world. He would arrive eventually there in Nova Scotia. He would go on uh, to become a great evangelist, to share the gospel with many. And as he recounted in his evangelism and his preaching the ways that God had taught him through his word and just through life, he shared something that happened on that boat that really helped to shape him. See, Peter came from a family there in Russia that didn't have great means, and so his family had saved and saved and saved to buy this ticket to get him on this boat that would take him to the other side of the world. They they were, in essence, investing in his future by buying this ticket for him. They saved everything they had to buy this ticket and had little left over to buy provisions for his trip. And so his mother packed for him a great deal of bread and of garlic. This would be what he would eat on this long journey across the ocean. Was the journey set in... Peter would walk around the ship, he would eat his bread and garlic, and he would notice as he would peer through the winding, those wealthy passengers sitting in the dining hall, eating extravagant meals. Three times a day, he would walk past, and he would long for the food that they were eating, and some of the ship's crew noticed his plight. They were people who worked in the kitchen, and so they pulled him aside and made a deal with him. They said, if you'll do some of our kitchen responsibilities and chores, we'll make sure you get to eat the same food that they're eating. So Peter thought that sounded like a great deal. He took him up on it. He worked day and night in that kitchen, cleaning dishes, cleaning the kitchen, mopping floors, and sure enough, just as they promised, they would bring him three meals a day. It wasn't until the last day of the voyage that Peter discovered a truth that he had missed. That along with the passage that that ticket paid for, he also was to receive three meals in the ship's dining cart. Those meals were already paid for. And yet here he was, day and night, working for something that he had already paid for. He said that truth would stay with him and would remind him of the truth of the gospel, the truth that Paul is seeking to get across to the Galatians. That the Galatians had responded, many of them, to the gospel. Their salvation was paid for. And then along came these Judaizers and said, no, you have to work for it. And many of them began to listen to that false teaching. And just like Peter, they were working for something that had already been paid for. Their debt had been paid by Christ and Christ alone, and yet they thought they still needed to work for it. And so Paul is writing to help them understand you do not need to work for that which is paid for, because if you are in Christ, you are a son. And if you are a son, you are an heir. So what does that mean? Well, that's what he goes on to describe in verses 1 through 7, and that will be what we walk through today as we prepare to come to the Lord's table together. Beginning with this first reminder in our outline, point one. Being an heir means that God has redeemed us from our bondage. God redeems us from our bondage. 
Paul here in these opening verses of chapter 4 is explaining what it means to be an heir. And so he uses the example of a young child who is the heir of a great estate. And he says here in verse 1 that when this minor, that, that when this child's a minor, he's no different from a slave. Because in verse 2, he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So when this day comes, when this coming of age comes, he's to receive this inheritance. Until that point, he's under these guardians, under these managers. Now to understand what Paul is trying to illustrate here, it's helpful for us to know a bit about the context of what he's writing in. That Greek civil law that he likely had in mind. You see, in those days it was customary for a wealthy man to take his eldest son, who was to be his heir, and to place them under the management of someone. Now, just as he says here, guardians and managers. Oftentimes, these were servants of the master. And he would pay, place his heir under the, the, the tutelage of these servants. They were to watch over him. They were to teach him. They were to guide his education. They were to help him to prepare to one day manage the wealth that his father would leave to him. That day would come at the appointed time. But throughout that child's youth, they would know that one day they were to inherit that great fortune. But for all practical purposes, in the meantime, their lives didn't look that much different than the servants. They, they didn't have control over the estate. That they couldn't go in and tell others what to do. In fact, often they were told what to do by the servants who were their managers. And so, as much as they were an heir, they didn't have much more liberty than the common servant. In fact, they had no legal rights over the property until the day that the father set aside for them to receive the inheritance. Paul is saying in this system that times the son would feel more like a servant, a slave, than he would like that, that person who was to receive the inheritance. <clears throat> and Paul says, we are like that child. He says that our father has placed us under guardians, under a manager, until the time comes when we're to receive the inheritance. Now this is language that he's already used in his letter to Galatians. If you look back at Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, you see Paul writes, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now again, just as a reminder, this is ground we've already covered, but how was the law our guardian? Well, think again of that example. Paul's saying that this child is is learning, is preparing, is, is being taught and, and, and poured into to get to that point where he's ready to receive the inheritance. So Paul says, well, the law does that for us. The law is our guardian. The law is preparing us for Jesus Christ and the gospel. How does the law do that? Well, the law shows us our sin and shows us our need for a Savior. I've used this illustration a number of times about going down the road and seeing the speed limit sign and the Lord in His providence felt that I needed a, a more specific illustration to share. So uh, Friday night, uh, Vivian and I were on the way home from Louisville. We'd done a college visit up there at, at Boyce College at Southern Seminary and uh, we were coming back there and we were behind a car and, 
it, it was going below the speed limit, so finally at one point I thought, well, I'll just pass this car, and as I passed the car, right as I got in that left lane, I noticed in the night, well, that looks like a car parked on the side of the road. And then the blue lights, and then I looked down and saw the speed. I wish it had just been a speed limit sign that I'd seen. And then I was pulled over, and as I was pulled over, and if you've ever been in this situation, it's probably similar, the first thing the officer said to me is, Sir, do you know why I'm pulling you over? And I knew. <laughs> I didn't know exactly what the speed limit was, and I didn't know exactly what speed I was going, but I knew I was pulled over because I was doing something wrong, because I was speeding. And so that officer went back to their car. It took quite a while to work on this ticket. I turned to Vivian and thought, I might be going to jail tonight. I don't know what's going on. But in grace, he came back and issued me a warning. He didn't give me a ticket. And so I turned to that officer and I said, thank you. I explained to him that I'm teaching my daughter how to drive, that she was learning <laughs> from my bad example in this situation. But I thank the officer. I said, I was doing the wrong thing. Thank you for showing me I was doing the wrong thing. And then he said this. He said, well, sir, you need to be careful. We've had a lot of accidents on this road lately. See, that, that law was there. He, he pulled me over not just because I was doing the wrong thing. It was actually to protect me and protect others. Paul says that's another reason. The Scripture says that's another reason we have the law. The law is put in place to restrain us from evil. If there was no speed limit anywhere in our county, there'd be more accidents. There'd be more wrecks. There'd be more fatalities. Why? Because people would just go at whatever speed they chose to go, and that would be dangerous. The Scripture says that God gives the law to show us that we are sinners and to protect us from our own sinfulness. It is indeed a guardian. In that way, it is a good thing. The law set for God's people this expectation of how they were to live. But it also showed them they could never live according to that expectation. And so it highlighted for them over and over and over again their need for a Savior. Their need for one who indeed is righteous. Their understanding that they indeed were not righteous. Paul shows us here that there are good aspects of the law as our guardian, and yet we also see that there are negative aspects of the law as our guardian. Verse 3 says, But in the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And there are various interpretations of this passage. We could spend much time on it, but I think what all would agree on is this. We were slaves. <laughs> the, the Scripture says we were under bondage. And so what happened with God's people and what resulted eventually in folks like the Judaizers is they took <coughs> this law, which was to show them they were sinners, to show them there was a standard, to show them they could never meet that standard. And many began to look to that standard and say, well, I am righteous. They began to consider themselves self-righteous. They began to think that the law was just a proof text that they really were righteous before God, that they could truly attain this righteousness through their works. We saw this often in, see this often in the Gospels and the Pharisees. The Pharisees who would come to Jesus and would try to point out His wrong and plead their right. 
And we've covered this passage before in our study of Galatians, John chapter 8. You remember what Jesus says to them? Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so that's what the scripture helps us to see. We are slaves to sin. And often our response to that, the world's response to that, isn't much different than the Pharisees and the Judaizers' response to that. Well, I'm not a slave of anybody. <laughs> I mean, you go up to someone who's of the world, you begin to share the gospel with them, and you say to them, you know what, you're, you're a slave to sin. And their likely response will be to push back against that. Why? Because they will say, well, I'm not a slave to anything. I am free to do as I please. I mean, that's what sin dangles in front of us, isn't it? Freedom. Do as you please. Well, that's all well and good until you try to stop. See, the Scripture says we are enslaved to sin, meaning we really can't do whatever we want, that we are going to continue to sin, that we can't just wake up one day and say, well, you know what? I'm tired of sin. I think I'll try righteousness, and I'll just do everything perfectly. Now, mentioned this before, you know, if, if we could attain salvation by works, then go ahead and do it. <laughs> you struggling with a sin in your life? Well, just stop it. In fact, issue that challenge to a non-believing friend. One who says to you they're a slave of nothing. Just start pointing out these things in their life that are in disobedience to God and say, okay, if you really have freedom and choice, then just stop doing all these things. Now, certainly there are things we can stop doing. But, but God says that sin is a matter of the heart. And so Jesus says stopping sin isn't just a matter of saying, well, you shall not murder, so I'm not going to murder anymore. Jesus says if you've ever called somebody a fool, <laughs> even in your mind, then you're a murderer. I mean, can you control every thought that goes through your mind? You may be able to control what you act on and don't act on, but you can't control that. We cannot make ourselves righteous. We are slaves to sin and what the law helps us to see is that we are under the bondage of sin we are under the bondage of the law if we practice sin we are a slave of sin and the good news of the gospel is that god redeems us from this bondage and in order for us to become an heir rather than being a slave to sin we need to become a slave to righteousness and that happens when god redeems us and that is the glorious truth we see in His Word, is that He redeems us from this enslavement to the elementary principles of the world. Not only that, but point two, we see in the Scripture that He adopts us as His children. And so being an heir doesn't just mean that we're redeemed from our bondage to sin. It means now we're adopted into the family of God. We're adopted as His children. Just as this father in Paul's illustration uh, appoints a specific time when the heir will receive the inheritance so God has a time in which He works when His Son comes that people might receive life through Him. Verse 4, notice again, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son born of a woman born under the law. C consider that passage for a second. When the fullness of time had come. Friends, this is a great reminder to us of the sovereignty of God. This is a great reminder to us that no matter what you are going through right now, 
God has a plan and God is sovereign over that plan. And that God has a perfect time in which He will move in the way that He will move. Pastor, theologian Tom Schreiner says it this way, if God rules over history, we can trust Him with the particulars of our lives as well. We may agonize about particular sufferings in our lives, health problems, circumstances that are difficult, or or the timing of the death of loved ones. Usually we don't understand such hard things. And even though we don't fully grasp why sufferings happen to us, we can cling to the promise of God's love for us, and we can trust that He will strengthen us for whatever comes our way. God is sovereign. God is in control. And God has a plan. And He will work out His plan in His timing. And friend, His timing is always perfect. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way, you cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but He never forgets His promises. He may seem to be working very slowly or even to be forgetting His promises, but when His promises come true, and they will come true, they always burst the banks of what you imagined. Generation after generation after generation of God's people longed for and looked for the coming of the Messiah. And then at the appointed time, God burst through history. And His Son came. When the fullness of time came, when it was His appointed time, He sent Jesus. Paul writes here that He was fully God and fully man. He was born of a woman, born under the law. God did not remove the righteous standard of the law at the incarnation. But He sent Christ who was able to redeem those who were under the law. It's the same word used in Galatians 3.13 for redeemed. It's that picture of a slave being purchased by an owner for the slave's price. Being bought out of that slavery. That they are being redeemed. That their price of slavery is being paid. And here the slave master is the law. And the one who frees us from the law and pays our price is Jesus. Because He fulfills all of the law's demands and He frees us from the bondage that we have under the law. Why? So that, verse 5, we might receive adoptions as sons. Literally what this says is that in Christ we receive the sonship. And this is a very important term in Paul's culture. It's a, a legal term. You see, in the, the Greco-Roman world, a, a childless, wealthy man could pick an heir from among his servants. He did not have biologically a child to carry on the family name, to carry on the inheritance, so he could choose, he could adopt, he could give the sonship to a servant. And once that took place legally, that was now his son. That was now his heir. 
It was the same as if that person had been born biologically as his oldest son. He was given all the rights and privileges. Why? Because he legally had been adopted. Though by birth he was a slave without a relationship with the father, now he receives the legal status of a son. And isn't that the picture of what happens to us in Christ? We are born slaves of sin and we are brought into the household of God as heirs. When we are purchased, we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what makes us a child of God. We talked about this last Lord's Day. Seven plus billion people on the earth today are not God's children. They are image bearers of God. Every single one of them, every person alive today is an image bearer. But every person alive is not a child. We become a child of God, the Scripture says. When we receive Christ, when we believe in His name, when we confess Him as Lord, we become a child. We are adopted as sons. We receive the sonship. And now we are an heir. And here's the beautiful part of that. Sometimes we tend to talk about the Gospel as if it is the wiping clean of our slate. We use that terminology, you know, God just, he just wipes our slate clean. He, he just cleanses us, he, he wipes our slate clean. And that is true, but where we fail in that picture is we often then think, it's my responsibility to keep it clean moving forward. God has wiped my slate clean. He's given me a fresh start, we might say. He's given me a new beginning, we might say. And those are all correct. But the problem with that thinking is, is then we think we're responsible to keep the slate clean. Everything now depends on us moving forward. And what it means to be adopted as a son in Christ and through Christ is not just that God wipes the slate clean, but then God writes on the slate the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are judged by His righteousness. And that should encourage us, the Scripture says, to bear good fruit. We're going to talk much of this as we continue in Galatians. It doesn't mean we just sin and it doesn't matter. No, that's not gospel at all. It should radically affect how we live. But the motivation for how you live is the issue. And if you think that it's your responsibility to keep up that status that God has given you, then friends, you are listening more to the Judaizer than you are to Jesus. Jesus not only wipes our slate clean, but God writes His righteousness on it. Our inheritance, therefore, is not a prize to be won. It is a gift from Christ. It is given to those who are in Christ, who have been adopted as His sons, meaning men and women as His children. And it is secure, not because of our faithfulness, but because of His. This brings us to point three. We see here that God seals us with the Holy Spirit. Verse six, Paul writes, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. So notice there the parallel. Verse six, God sent His Spirit. Verse four, God sent His Son. So the Son's purpose was to secure for us that, that legal status of sonship. We are now adopted in. We are legally a son. The Spirit's purpose 
is to secure our actual experience of it. Well, why don't we take that clean slate and then just live however we want? Well, because we have the Spirit of the Son of the living God in our hearts. Because He's been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit. We are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. Specifically here, Paul says, we are empowered by the Spirit to call out to God and to cry, Abba, Father. He says that's a mark of the Spirit. God sent his, the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That that word crying means calls out. Means we have a new access to the Father now through the Son, empowered by the Spirit. We can call out to God and He hears our voice. The Scripture talks about how we're the sheep and how we know the voice of the Master. And that's true. And what's equally true in good news of the Gospel is that the Master knows our voice now too. He hears the cries of His children. I can remember in the early days of parenting when our firstborn came along, Parker, I can remember being at, at the church that, that we went to then. We were in Bowling Green. It was a much larger church. There were lots of babies there. And I, I remember specifically as we would, you know, just pass the baby over the counter and start to walk to our Sunday school class, you could always hear a baby crying. Now, I didn't know whose baby was crying. I didn't know it was my baby that's crying. I didn't know it was somebody else's baby that's crying. But my wife knew whose baby it was. <laughs> she was in tune. And so as we'd walk down that hall and we'd hear the baby cry, I'd just look at her and go, and she just, no, it's not off. But then on that occasion, we'd walk down that hall, I'd hear that baby cry, I'd look at her and she'd go, and just turn right back around. She knew the cry of her child. The Scripture says we call out to God, Abba, Father. That that term is the same today as when we say Papa or Daddy. God knows the voice of His children and He hears the voice of His children. And the Scripture says here then we are to call out to God as we pray. Friend, just consider for a moment... How do you pray? Well, what do your prayers sound like? Are they a routine mechanical exercise? Do you tend to just say the same thing over and over and over again? See, I live in a home where my children call out to me often. <laughs> Admittedly, they call out to their mother more, but let's just imagine she's out for the moment, and so they're calling out to me. And when they call out to me, and I go to their room at bedtime, they usually don't say, Dear Father, now I lay me down to sleep, will you get some water to keep? That They don't have a routine, rhythmic, rhyming way of talking to me. They say, Hey Dad! I need some water. Now, they say that because I'm their father. And I, at points in time, have said to them, if you need anything, you can let me know. It is my pleasure to do things for you. I am your father. Now, admittedly, by the fourth or fifth cup of water, we start to renegotiate that. But they know they can call out to me because I have told them, and they know the truth, I'm their dad. 
I don't want them opening up the window and calling out to strangers, can you bring a cup of water to my room? I don't want them picking up a phone and, and calling their grandparents in Bartown, will you bring me some water? Now I'm their father. And I'm listening. And it's my good pleasure to give them things. How much greater, how much more perfect a picture that we have a heavenly Father whose good pleasure is to hear the cries, the calls of His children and to respond in provision. And how often are our cries to Him and our calls to Him routine, mechanical, rhythmal prayers that we learned as a child and we say over and over again. And while the content might be biblical, so often we don't even think about what we're saying. So here's how prayer works, very simply. God has spoken to us through His Word. We are responding to Him now. He has told us in His Word His promises. We respond to those promises through prayer. He has told us who He is. We respond to that truth through thanksgiving and through prayer. Paul here says that because we have been filled with the Spirit of the Son of the living God, we can call out to God. We can pray to God. Abba, Father. Papa, Daddy. And we can have full assurance that He welcomes those prayers. So friend, when you pray, Ask this question. Are you acting more like a slave who is afraid of God or a child who is assured by his father's love? And Paul says here, we are no longer slaves, we are sons. How do we know about the father's love? We read about it in his word. And we respond to that word through prayer. And because we've been adopted as sons, sealed with the Holy Spirit, we can call out to God as a child who is assured of their father's love. Verse 7, Paul brings all this together in a conclusion. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul's conclusion here is these, these Gentile converts of Galatia they're, they're not slaves regardless of what anyone else has told them but they are sons they are heirs they are sons of God the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob the God of all the nations they are now sons and they are heirs and friends if you were in Christ today then you too are a child of God and you too are an heir. And you're no longer a slave to sin. Because the Scripture says you've been redeemed. You've been adopted. You are a child of the King. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit who then cries out within you, Abba, Father, that we can go to our Father. We can call out to Him and we can be assured that He hears us in Christ through the power of the Spirit. Friends, if you are indeed in Christ, you have that access. And if you were in Christ today, you have access to this table. See, God's Word reminds us that we don't have to do any extra work to receive this meal. 
our passage has been paid to a new heaven and a new earth. Our ticket has been stamped. We, we don't have to work for this bread and this cup. We don't have to try to do good deeds to earn it. The Scripture does say we are to receive it cautiously and that we are to confess before the Lord if we are unrepentant, if we are in sin and rebellious, then the Scripture says don't receive this. Why? Because you are bringing judgment on yourself. You're saying that Christ's death for me is insignificant in this moment. I want to live as I please. Which incidentally is more the fruit of being a slave to sin than it is being a slave to righteousness. That this table is a reminder for those of us in Christ, not that we need to be perfect to receive it, but that we need to trust in Him who is perfect. And if your trust is in Christ today, then friend, your slate has been wiped clean and Christ's righteousness has been written on it. And you can receive this cup and this bread with joy because you have access to this table and to the Father through Christ and Christ alone. And so again, this will be our time of response today. This will be a time for us to pray, for us to repent, for us to consider the glorious work of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ.